And as you are able, I'd invite you to stand. When we stand, the reason that we do that, whether we're together or whether you're in, in your home, it's to recognize the authority of God's word over our lives. Mark 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, written of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning, Christ community. It's good to be with you again this morning. It's a privilege to speak to you from God's Word as always. But uh, because I have the mic this morning and there's no one here to stop me, a special shout out to Scott Berkey and John Elliott, who both have birthdays today. I know. Two men uh, who uh, currently serve as elders of this church, and we're very grateful for them. So happy birthday, men. Well, last week uh, was a critical text in the book of Mark, and all of Mark, you know, really is a book asking the question, as most of the Gospels do, in total, who is Jesus? And for about eight chapters, Jesus has been demonstrating his power and authority to teach in new ways that no one had ever heard before, and to exercise power over demons and sickness in ways that no one had ever seen. And all the while, the 12 first disciples of Jesus were following him, watching his every move and listening to every word that he spoke. And then last week, when Peter was asked by the Lord, who do you say that I am? He replies, you are the Christ. Well, Peter got it right, but not fully right. At least he didn't fully understand You see, when Jesus started talking about suffering, when Jesus alluded to the fact that he would suffer and be killed, Peter could not handle it. He rebuked Jesus. He corrected him. He couldn't bear the thought. He had just come to really believe, even with the words of his own mouth, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the sent one from God who would deliver the people of Israel. And all this talk about death and suffering was far more than he could possibly deal with. Well, this morning, we come to a unique passage. You remember Moses 
When Moses came down from Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, it says that his face was shining, which was a reflection of the glory of God having just been near his presence. Later, Moses asked God in Exodus 33 and verse 18, he says, now please show me your glory. But even then, God places Moses in the crack of a rock so that when the glory of the Lord passes by, Moses can only see a tiny glimpse of the back as it's passing. But this text is different. For a short while, three of his disciples would see Jesus in a way that no one on this side of heaven has ever seen him before. Let me pray again for us, and then we'll look at our text more in depth this morning. Father, I do ask that you would reveal to us your glory in this text, that we would see Christ for who he is, that just as they saw him radiant and shining, God, that we would no less see you in your word as the all-sufficient king of the universe. God, teach us this morning from your word. Help us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look at the text. In verse 9, he says this, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, taken on its own, this may seem somewhat intense in that he's talking about their death. But remember, as I said, that's where Mark just came from. Jesus told them that he was going to suffer and die. And more than that, he told them that if they wanted to follow him, that they were going to pick up a cross like the one he would pick up and set out on the road to die just like him. And so here he says, some of you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power. Well, though there are a few interpretations of what that means exactly, the most common understanding is where we'll focus our time today. When we talk about the kingdom of God coming in power, we mean such a time when Jesus returns, a time when the clouds are rolled back and the God who became man Jesus, the Christ, would descend from heaven full of glory to rule and reign over all the earth. Now, clearly, that's not going to happen right here in this text. And as we'll see, the disciples following Jesus really had no idea what he was talking about. And they had no concept of a future return of Christ in that way. But Jesus was about to reveal himself to three of his friends three of his followers, in a very special way. A way that would have brought to mind something very familiar to them that I've already alluded to. And if it hasn't come to your mind, if you read the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Exodus, this scene is strangely familiar. We'll highlight a few of those familiarities as we walk through the text, but let's look at what Mark has to say, continuing in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So six days is actually a kind of strange reference in Mark, but it becomes a lot clearer if we think back to a different time period. Listen to verse 16 from Exodus chapter 24. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. You see what's happening. Back in Exodus, when Moses was waiting to ascend the mountain, he waited six days while a cloud covered it. And so it was for Peter, James, and John. This is essentially a sort of recreation of the scene from Exodus where Moses was going up the mountain to meet with God. But there's a strange twist to this narrative. 
Remember, Mark puts everything in this book for a very particular reason, in a very particular order, in a very particular cadence. The order here is this. Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ. Then Jesus speaks about his own suffering and death. Peter freaks out and tells him to stop saying those things. After which Jesus says the stinging words, get behind me, Satan. Not words you want to hear from Jesus. And he calls Peter to stop thinking like the world. Jesus tells him to set his mind on the things of God, not the things of man. And then, without any pause, no more explanation, Jesus calls the crowds to himself, it says in chapter 8, and with Peter in shock standing there, he tells all of them that he's going to suffer, that they're going to suffer if they follow him. And Peter's understanding of what the Messiah would be like, what he would do, was completely flawed. And so, at this point, before they go up the mountain, Peter is distraught, but not only him, I'm sure all of those who were with Jesus were distraught. And then, after a six-day waiting period, very similar to the six days Moses waited before ascending Mount Sinai, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, three of his closest friends, to a high mountain. He gathers them together. He starts the slow ascent thousands of feet up. And so as we look at what comes next, next, ask yourself this question. Why, after foretelling his own death and calling these men to suffer with him, these men who are confused and distraught, why would he retreat up a mountain to pray with them? Why does Jesus have specifically, what does Jesus have specifically in mind for them? Let's look at what happens on this mountain. Look at the second half of verse 3. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. See, after leading them up the mountain to pray, and we know that they're going to pray because Luke tells us that in his gospel, you can imagine Jesus saying to them, just wait, just pay attention, watch. And before their eyes, he transfigured, he changed. And how did he change? Well, he became intensely radiant. This is the same kind of image that we get when Moses comes back down Sinai after encountering God. His face was glowing. But it's not just a reflection of glory. What these three men saw now was, in fact, the glory of God, a glowing Christ. In Matthew's account, in Matthew's gospel account, we read this. His face, Christ, shone like the sun. More than that, even his garments became intensely white. Specifically, as Mark says, white in such a way that no one on earth could have bleached them that white. What he's trying to get across was that this scene was not from man, but from God. They were witnesses to something that was undeniably beautiful and captivating. In the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord is always referred to in a sense of a brilliant, bright light. And right now, standing before them, was Jesus, the Christ. But his humanity was not particularly on display. The man that they had come to know, the man that they had come to walk with, to play with, to talk to, to learn from, and to dine with, was utterly different in this scene than they had ever seen. 
shining forth was the eternal divine nature of the God-man Jesus. More brilliant than the light of all the stars in the galaxy, the Son of Man, whom they didn't even fully understand. He was displaying the kingdom of God coming in power. What they were witnessing was a glimpse of what Jesus had willingly given up, his divine kingship, in order to come and dwell with them, to walk with them, to rescue them. They were seeing that now for the first time right before their eyes. And so they're standing there. The other gospel accounts say that they were tired when this came up, and they're awoken by the revelation of the glory of Christ. And then in verse 4, it says this, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now this party just got a whole lot more strange. See, Moses had died some 14 years earlier, and Elijah about 900 years earlier. But that didn't stop them, or at least didn't stop God, from inviting them to come and have probably what was one of the most intense and interesting conversations of all time. Now, we don't know exactly why it was Moses and Elijah. We'll talk more about that in a bit, but it could have been others in history. But the best that we can understand, what makes the most sense here, is that Moses and Elijah represented the law and the prophets. And if that's confusing to you, it simply means the law and the prophets is all that transpired before Jesus entered the scene of history as a man. Remember Moses went up a high mountain similar to this one to meet with God, and he came down with the Ten Commandments. Well, he is the representative of the old covenant that God made with his people according to the law. And Elijah also is associated with Mount Sinai, as we read in 1 Kings, when he also received a word from God. See, here you have Moses and Elijah who represented the law that Israel was never able to keep, the law that was never able to save them, and the words of the prophets for thousands of years telling people to follow the law of God and of the Messiah who was to come. And there they were, these two representatives, right before the eyes of Peter, James, and John, right after Peter acknowledged that he knew who Jesus was, the Christ. And the three of them are talking as Jesus is glowing with radiant glory. And if you're there, if you're Peter, James, or John, your mind is exploding. But what were they talking about? Well, we don't know from Mark, but again, Luke records the same account in chapter 9 of his gospel. And in Luke 9, in verse 30, we read this. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. I wonder if you, did you catch that? See, Peter just cannot escape this narrative. The three men, shining in the light of glory, the true nature of Christ revealed, are standing talking about the death of Jesus, his departure, ultimately, from the world. And if you're Peter, and you see these great men from the past speaking with the greatest leader, the greatest rabbi you've ever known, you probably assume they're talking about overthrowing the Roman Empire or restoring some kind of great wealth to Israel. But no, again, over and over and over, from here on out in the rest of the book of Mark, no matter where Peter turns from this point on and the other disciples, they're all going to be led down a path that leads to the death of Christ. 
their beloved teacher and friend. And so why now? Why show this to them now? Do you remember my question from before? In the midst of their confusion about all this talk of suffering and death, why show them this right now? Why bring Peter, James, and John, his closest three friends, up this mountain? Because he loved them. Because he wanted to encourage them. He knew that these words were hard for them to receive. Because he wanted to give them a foretaste of what it was that they were called to suffer for. In the last section, Jesus told them, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Let me read that one more time. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Well, if Jesus was actually telling them that he was going to die, and if he was actually telling them that they would suffer like him, then what hope is there? The hope of glory. See, they're beginning to see that this is not just a great leader, not just a great teacher, not someone who would protect Israel from the harm of earthly enemies, not a Messiah like Israel thought God would send. This is the Messiah who is, in fact, God himself. And they stared into the blinding light displayed in the glorified Christ on the mountain, and they were seeing the hope of eternal glory, the reason the one for whom all of life was worth counting as loss, so that they might gain him. That's the first reason. He brought them up there to encourage them, to give them hope. And in turn, this can encourage us. But I want you to pause. I want you to consider where you are right now in life. All of us, you and me, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And every day, it seems to hit people harder and harder. Not necessarily in the forms of of health, but in the manner in which we live our lives. The CDC just advised wearing masks in public. So now everywhere you turn, you go, it's one more reminder that things are really strange. Walmart is about to set up one-way directional aisle shopping with six-feet measuring tapes, because clearly I can't judge the distance, on the ground. We're all growing more and more stir-crazy, I know I am, with many of us feeling the pains of depressed moods and anxious thoughts and frustrations. Somehow we feel like, I I do at least, I I know that everything is going to be okay eventually, but right now there's confusion and uncertainty and everybody's just a little bit more tense than they were yesterday. Though not in the same way, this is what Peter and his friends were experiencing. The way that they had planned things to go were not happening. They were confused. They were frustrated. They knew they wanted to follow him, because they knew no one like him, but they were unsure about these things that he's saying. And Jesus, which if you know Jesus from his word, it's so like him. God looks at them in their need. Jesus looks at them in their need, and he draws them to himself, and he encourages them by giving them a glimpse of his glory, of the true and everlasting king that is to come. 
And so he brought them there. And he displayed his glory to them to encourage them as they continue to follow him toward his death and suffer like him. More than witnessing the mighty works of the hands of Jesus, now they saw with their own eyes the very nature of his divine kingship. But let's continue. See, in that moment, as Peter, James, and John listen in to this you know, glorious conversation that's happening between Moses and Elijah and Jesus, the silence is broken. Paraphrase. This is Peter. Uh, excuse me, uh, Jesus? Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I can't help but notice uh, you don't have proper accommodations. And so it's a really good thing that my boys and I are here because we can run over to REI and pick you up a tent and maybe one for your boys too. That sound like a good idea? Listen to what he actually says. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is a good thing that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now I love verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. We're not going to spend too much time trying to figure out what in the world Peter was thinking, because honestly, Mark doesn't give it much of a second thought either. But there was something in that moment that made these three disciples terrified, though Jesus was trying to encourage them. But it makes sense, right? Which one of us, if Christ came right now in your living room, or wherever you're watching this, which one of us, if he did that, wouldn't be appropriately fearful? In his fear, Peter simply didn't know what to say, so he just started talking. Peter's known for talking. And I'm sure we can all relate to this. There was nothing normal about what Peter was seeing, and so he filled the silence with the sound of his own voice. And Peter is often thought of, if you read um, about this section, Peter's often thought of as foolish here, unable to just keep his mouth shut. But I don't think that we need to make that necessary jump. Maybe Peter wanted this event to last longer than a brief moment. Maybe he believed by setting up tents, God would dwell with them longer. Maybe he believed, or, or maybe he believed that if he could just make this last for a longer period of time, that he wouldn't have to deal with some of the questions that he had. But what is clear, however, as we'll see in a moment, is that no matter how pure Peter's idea was, even if he merely wanted to show them hospitality, he didn't understand all that was going on right in front of his very own eyes. He still didn't understand that Christ, who was on display in glory, would soon go down the mountain and suffer. See, the two great men from history and the Savior of all humanity are talking about the cross, and Peter interrupts the conversation to redirect them to something a bit more palatable. Let's just set up here. But just a note for us all. You cannot, I cannot, we cannot call ourselves Christians, we cannot call ourselves followers of Jesus, and avoid the call to suffer like Christ suffered. There is no Christianity apart from suffering. Jesus came not to be a good example, but to be a perfect sacrifice. See, death is inevitable. And Jesus was not going to stop teaching this to the men who followed him, to the men who loved him. But look at what follows next. The text continues in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. 
And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. There are many passages in the Old Testament where a cloud like this one is essentially the vehicle of God's presence. More striking is, again, the similarity of that cloud that surrounded Sinai when Moses went up to be with God. Six days of waiting for Moses, and then from the cloud, Exodus 24, 16, tells us that God called to Moses. So too here, you have two witnesses to the Son of God, Moses and Elijah, but now you have a third witness. This is the crystal clear voice of God the Father proclaiming the true and glorious identity of Christ, God the Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And all of a sudden, in that moment, it's just Peter, James, and John alone with Jesus. No more glory on display. No Moses. No Elijah. There they were again, together with their friend and teacher. And Peter would later, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he'll give an account of this narrative. Listen to what he says from chapter 1 in 2 Peter. This is Peter speaking. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. See, that was undoubtedly the most incredible experience of Peter's life. And it stuck with him and was for him proof as he would later write, of the identity of Jesus, the beloved Son of God. And I can only imagine what it must have been like for, him, for those three men, the privilege that it must have been to be given that kind of display of glory, unknown to anyone else in all of history, past and will not be known in all of future, even until right now in this moment, until he returns. Do you remember back at the beginning of the book of Mark? Do you remember the story of Jesus' baptism by John? Speaking of Jesus, Mark writes this in the first chapter in verse 10. And when he came up, when Jesus, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him, descending, descending on Jesus like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And that sounds a lot like what we just read. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, God spoke from heaven and said to Jesus, words of affirmation from a father. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And here on the mountain, after his glory was revealed, God speaks to the disciples in the presence of Jesus in a way to us and to all of creation. This is my beloved son. And though the father is undoubtedly still pleased with him, as Peter writes about in Second Peter, that isn't what Mark records, because God said to him, Listen to him. Listen to him. And verse 9 says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It's not uncommon for Jesus to tell others to keep silent about miraculous signs. But this isn't just a miraculous sign. Here he tells them to say nothing of what they had just witnessed until he had risen from the dead. Well, 
what comes before rising from the dead is death. And we're right back to the same theme of death again, and it shouldn't shock anyone that they still don't get it. Look at verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, they listened, questioning what this rising of the dead might mean. Then it says, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So I'm not going to say everything that could be said in these verses. The disciples have questions. They aren't sure what to think. But if you read the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, you'll see in chapter 4, verse 5, this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. If you ask me, I tend to believe with many people that John the Baptist was actually the one who came to prepare the way for the coming of Christ, to fulfill the prophecy about Elijah in Malachi. But I don't want to get lost in the weeds here. In these verses, we want to pay a lot more attention to what Jesus says than what the disciples are saying in their confusion. As they are questioning again about rising from the dead and when Elijah will come, Jesus says to them in verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man himself? That he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see again what Jesus is continuing to tell them. The theme he's continuing to push here is that he, the very Christ sent by God, and all those who follow him will be treated with contempt and will suffer. I want to wrap this up this morning. How does this kind of impact our lives? Well, today, as Craig said earlier, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the traditional celebration that remembers the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. And you remember the scene where people came and laid palm branches down and their cloaks before him as a show of honor and respect. But what's so ironic about that day was that they were laying palm branches for him to ride down a road that would lead to his capture and his torture and eventually his death. And Jesus knew it. It wasn't a shock to him. But here's where this narrative meets us today. Next week is Easter. And let me tell you, I am just flat out sad and at times angry that we won't be in this room together worshiping Christ as a full body. This is not how things are supposed to be. See, on that mountain, before the witnesses of men and God, the crystal clear divine kingship of Jesus was put on display in a way that the world has never seen. But next week, we are going to celebrate the certain truth that the world will see it again. But when we do, it will not last for moments. It will last for all of eternity. See, Jesus gave them a glimpse of his glory to encourage them on the road of suffering because that road of suffering will lead to eternal glory. A resurrection from the dead, at which point all suffering, all suffering, all sadness, and all pain will cease to exist. See, Jesus was giving them a taste of what they would know forever. That's the encouragement to us. And it should empower us to live lives that proclaim from the mountaintops that Jesus is Lord. 
See, we weren't there on that mountain, but, but, and I really do believe this, we have it so much better than Peter, James, and John because we have the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. We know how the story ends. We know that that glimpse of glory that they saw that day is a foretaste of eternal glory with Christ. And so I pray that you would be encouraged as you read it. See, the whole world is suffering right now. Specifically because of the pandemic, whether that's financial suffering or physical suffering or loneliness or homelessness. But it was the same way in the world at the time that Peter, James, and John walked the earth. But all of that suffering, as it is today, all of the suffering in mankind, the suffering that is being placed upon us because of this pandemic, all of it, all of it exists because Jesus has not yet returned to set everything right. And so he brought them up that mountain to encourage them and to empower them so that after he died and after he was resurrected, that they would continue to live a life of sacrifice to tell anyone and everyone, whether they wanted to listen or not, that we will one day again see the glory of God completely and fully when he returns. And if right now, whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, if right now you are seeking to protect yourself from suffering, to protect yourself from the effects of a global pandemic, to shelter yourself from the storm, but you do not know and worship Christ as the centerpiece of your life, I pray that God would grip your heart and cause you to turn and repent and worship him. That is what he did for those men on that mountain in showing his glory to them. He wanted them to throw off the things of this world that they sought to protect themselves, to embrace the road to suffering so that they might be like him, not only in his death, but forever in eternal glory. This momentary suffering will pass, but only Jesus, only Jesus, the King of glory, can bring us lasting peace for all eternity. And so, as God spoke to them on that mountain, Christ is the beloved Son of God. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. He is screaming to us, I believe, right now. And I can't wait for Easter to come when we celebrate His resurrection. He is screaming to us to follow Him cast off the things that we would seek to save our lives and to trust him. Let me pray for us. God, I desire to see your glory. I, <laughs> I would love to stand on that mountain and to see, uh, to see a glimpse. And yet, God, I look at your word and I'm reminded that your word in it, nothing that it says, it is in vain. All of it will come to pass. And so we know that there is a day when you are coming back where there will be no more death and no more tears and no more sadness. And so God, as we walk this road, would it be a road ultimately that leads to Christ? Would we worship you in spirit and truth and find our hope in you? And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.